Welcome to the Austin Institute's podcast, What We Can't Not Talk About. When it comes to euthanasia and how things are going, we are woefully failing to stand on guard for each other as fellow Canadians. It just has been an absolute abject, if I can be honest, failure. Hello, everyone, and welcome to another episode of What We Can't Not Talk About, the podcast of the Austin Institute for the Study of Family and Culture. If you still haven't subscribed to our podcast, do so now. Also, if you like it and you still haven't shared it among your friends, you can do that right now. And if you're not a student, but you're a parent and you never donated to the Austin Institute, I think you could start. Now, that said, I'm thrilled to host today's episode. And the guest for this episode will be another friend of mine. I'd like to, to say is a friend. Before introducing you, though, to the friend and to the topic, I want to say that what we're about to talk about today, and funny choice of words here, is a topic that follows some of the ones we've recently discussed in our previous episodes. If you remember, a couple of months ago, we discussed our finitude and the lost art of dying with Dr. Dogdale. If you haven't heard that episode, I'd encourage you all to go back and listen to it because it was great insight on the limits that we all have and the best way to face them. And then most recently, we had an episode on the decline in population almost everywhere and an aging population. And I do think that these two topics coupled together lead us sadly to the topic that we will discuss today which is euthanasia and assisted suicide. We will look at it in particular through a Canadian lens. Unfortunately, Canada, and I say unfortunately because our guest is from Canada. Unfortunately, Canada is a pioneer in legalizing this practice. And so today we will have the pleasure, yes, to hear more about this from Brian Bird, a friend, an attorney, a former James Madison fellow at Princeton, which is where I had the pleasure of meeting him. So Brian, welcome on our show and thank you for joining us. Well, thank you so much for having me, Mariana. It's great to be here. So right now you're an assistant professor, correct? I am. Would you like to say more about your background and your expertise to our audience? Sure. So uh, I'm currently teaching and re doing research at the uh, University of British Columbia in Vancouver at Peter A. Allard School of Law, as it's called. And I've been here, this is now my, just finished my third year, started in uh, the summer of 2020, right after the fellowship of the James Madison program. I'm about to transition from a role as assistant professor to a lecturer as of this July. So I'll be focusing more on, on teaching, although I'm sure the research will still continue very much unabated. In terms of my interest in in this area, the topic for today, but more generally, I do a lot of writing and research on Canadian constitutional law, especially um, on our constitutionally entrenched Bill of Rights in Canada, the Charter of Rights and Freedoms, which has had a lot of had a lot to say in this area and has in some ways been kind of the vehicle for where Canada is on euthanasia now um, in its at the current uh, state of where things things are. So my doctorate at work, doctoral work was on freedom of conscience on one of the guarantees in the Charter of Rights and Freedoms. That one hasn't had much to say uh, yet in euthanasia, although it does come up, especially in areas of things like conscientious objection by healthcare professionals uh, who don't want to participate in euthanasia. There's still more of a story to be told, but that's kind of how I got interested in, in this area is just by virtue of being, I guess, an aspiring constitutional scholar in Canada. That's where a lot of the, uh, the heavy lifting legally is happening around euthanasia. Yeah, and I do remember our conversations in Princeton as I was writing about the liberalization of assisted suicide in Italy. And you were telling me about the things that had already happened in 2015, if I'm not wrong, in Canada and the path that, that Canada was following. So I think it would be interesting now to, you know, to let our audience know what exactly happened in Canada. The reason being that what happened there might easily happen elsewhere, including where we are. So why don't you, you know, you're a scholar, you wrote a very beautiful article about this on Killette, very clear also, I would say, but we did mention the term euthanasia. And I know that the terms are a little different as they're used by the courts and, and, and yeah. legislatures. So anyway, if you want to 
guide us through as you do with your students in the topic and how it how things happened in your country? Sure. So I guess the modern and current story of euthanasia in Canada really does indeed start in 2015 when the Supreme Court of Canada was asked by a number of claimants to invalidate the criminal prohibition on assisted suicide and murder to the extent that it encompassed or criminalized physician-assisted death, as it's sometimes called, or medical assistance in dying. And the vehicle used by those claimants was a particular provision or guarantee in our Charter of Rights and Freedoms in Canada, the right to life, liberty, and security of the person, uh, was used basically to channel an autonomy-based argument that part of life, liberty, and security of the person, of one's right to those three interests, encompassed or embedded within that was a right in certain medical circumstances, when certain medical circumstances had been achieved or reached or were in, in, in existence, a right to uh, receive assistance from a medical professional to end one's, one's life. And basically, in a nutshell, on the basis of that autonomy-driven argument, a certain form of autonomy, uh, the Supreme Court of Canada agreed that to the extent that the national criminal code, Canada has a national federal criminal code that applies across the country, to the extent that it and it did uh, criminalize either the assistance, assisting someone to commit suicide in certain medical circumstances. And I'll get to the, those circumstances are in a moment, or the actual direct kind of uh, infliction of, of what would otherwise be murder of killing someone through lethal injection, for example. To the extent that the criminal code of Canada prohibited those things, it was not compliant or not consistent with that right to life, liberty, or security and security of the person. And so the Supreme Court of Canada said that gave Parliament a year, the federal Parliament, a year to revise the criminal code so that it would comply with that judgment. And a year later, February of 2015, the Supreme Court of Canada hands down its judgment. Actually, about a year and a half later, July of June or July of 2016, and the summer of 2016, Parliament does revise the criminal code to basically carve out an allowance for, as it's termed in the, in the, in the legislation, medical assistance in dying. So only certain people can provide that so-called assistance in dying, basically in a nutshell, certain doctors and certain well, doctors and, and certain nurses. The provinces, which, which have quite a bit of jurisdiction over healthcare, then step in and then can say more about the regulation of that. And they have. But basically, once we get to the summer of 2016, we have across Canada, the legalization or decriminalization of the, what I often call the first version of, of euthanasia. It was indeed, in terms of what those medical circumstances are, just to wrap up this part, part, it was confined truly to the end of life. You know, someone who is suffering grievously from an irremediable condition with death on the horizon, death already approaching. Foreseeable so the, death, right? Foreseeable, yeah. Reasonably foreseeable death. They were the only ones that were um, allowed in that first version of euthanasia from July 2016 to um, avail themselves of, 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 uh, of medical assistance in dying. Can I stop you here one second? Yes. Thank you. It's so easy to, it's so easy to talk to you. So this version of 2016, the first thing that I want to ask is, it was this consistent with what the court had expressed. So we had a parliament that respected what the court had decided. So before the, literally before the the ink had proverbially dried on that legislation of July, June, July, 2016, summer of 2016, there was another set of, there was multiple, at least one uh, lawsuit that was started to challenge that legislation in keeping with your question as not going far enough. And the basic argument was that parliament had not respected fully what the court had said in 2015. Now I should say that I think most observers back in February of 2015, when the decision came out, viewed the court as indeed speaking only to a so-called right to euthanasia, to assisted death, indeed at the end of life, where life was reasonably, death was reasonably foreseeable, excuse me. So I think what Parliament passed in July of 2016, I think most observers viewed that as being consistent with what the court had said was necessary under its interpretation of the Constitution. But some people disagreed. And indeed, if you look at the, the decision, the, the case is called Carter, Carter v. Canada of 2015. If you read it, there is some potential ambiguity as to whether the right was broader is broader than what the what Parliament passed uh, about a year and a half later in the first version. But basically the argument was it should not be restricted to 
reasonably foreseeable death. Indeed, you know, a certain level of suffering that's determined by the individual as being grievous, intolerable, irremediable, but that this requirement of it being only at the end of life, if I can use that, that phrase, was challenged. And as we'll probably get to shortly, that challenge ended up being successful and thereby broadened quite quickly, only a few years after 2016, the, uh, the right to be even, or euthanasia to be even more broadly available to more Canadians. So it's still a bit of a debate as to whether okay. what the what the Parliament did in July of 2016 or the summer of 2016 was consistent. But I think most observers, I certainly and many others thought that what was being argued for in that litigation from 2015 was the, let's call it the end of life euthanasia. So it was a little bit of a surprise to some people, myself included, that that uh, litigation, fresh litigation, would come so quickly after the, the initial version from summer of 2016. Before we go to the second to the second versus broadening and to the status of things as they are today. I had a couple of more questions about the court. Mm. So, you know, coming from, you know, a country where the court has made similar decisions, but there are th certain things that I noticed about what it is in the Italian court, that there is a fear of the judges themselves, that things could go too far. Was that in any way a fear among the Canadian court in 2015? That's a good question. It's interesting, the decision, I always I often remember I have the chance, I refer to the, the first paragraph of the decision from 2015, really, literally paragraph one of the Carter decision, really tells the story, and maybe to a certain extent answers your question, Mariana, that the court seemed to come out of the, come out of the gate with a clear direction. I'll, just, I'll read it. It's just a couple of sentences. The court starts the decision this way, a unanimous decision by the court. It is a crime in Canada to assist another person in ending her own life. As a result... People who are grievously and irremediably ill cannot seek a physician's assistance in dying and may be condemned to a life of severe and intolerable suffering. A person facing this prospect has two options. She can take her own life prematurely, often by violent or dangerous means, or she can suffer until she dies from natural causes. The choice is cruel. That's the first paragraph of that decision. It seems to me that the court didn't get the sense from that paragraph and from what followed that there was deep concern. I mean, I think that the court does have in its decision some references near the end to things like conscientious objection by medical professionals who don't want to participate in euthanasia. And you know, has some relatively strong language saying that nothing in this decision you know, compels physicians to, to be involved in this. That's still a bit of a battle as to how, how, how whether that'll be the case uh, as the, the story unfolds. The court also did explicitly carve out and say that its decision in 2015 did not, explicitly did not apply to certain things. For example, euthanasia for psychiatric conditions, although as it turns out, we'll get to later, Parliament yeah. is actually going in that direction. Also, the court said that this decision has nothing to say about euthanasia for minors, although as it turns out, yeah, yeah. We'll, we'll get there. We'll get before, yeah. but Sorry to go it's ahead. just, no, but it's just striking. I think it says a lot about You're describing a court that is clearly a progressive court compared to other countries. Because, I mean, in, yeah. in as bad as the Italian decision was, I know that there were pages and pages concerned with the, you know, where where such a decision and such a liberal, like, broadening and the, the, legalizing some form of assisted suicide where would have led. And, and related to that, you use the term euthanasia. Are we talking about in Canada, with reference to Canada, are we talking about euthanasia or are we talking about assisted suicide? Right. So as it's turned out, and I'll maybe paint the picture this way, the most recent statistics that we have for euthanasia in Canada are from 2021. Uh, the 2022 numbers should be coming out quite soon. But the 2021 numbers show that about just over 10,000 people, population of Canada, I'm, I'm going to be a bit off, it must be about 38 million or so. But uh, over 10,000 people in 2021 just a few years after euthanasia first came to the country, availed themselves of, of this, of medical assistance in dying. We'll use that term to start. Virtually all of those, I'm talking like literally 99% of those cases are what we would, I think everyone would agree is euthanasia. In other words, the use of a lethal injection by a physician upon a person that ends their, their life, as opposed to someone you know being handed the, the, the drugs and saying, okay, I will now take it myself and, and self-administer. So it is indeed, I think, and you can please, you, you have a lot of expertise on this, I know, uh, Mariana, that it is basically virtually all what, what we would call, I think even traditionally, euthanasia. The, the uh, use of often, it's usually in the form of a lethal injection upon the patient by the, by the physician or the authorized 
personnel. Yeah, which I think, you know, throwing it out there, it it does open, you know, reflect. there is room for reflection over this fact because it seems like people do not easily commit suicide, right? Mm-hmm. We might delegate in a state of depression or loneliness or because, you know, well, I did read the statistics and like, what are the what are the conditions mentioned by the people that seek yes. assistance in dying? But like, there might be something to be said about being very careful for, you know, if someone is legislating on it to make it that the person should should always be the one responsible, right? And that maybe would, would decrease the numbers. But the other thing that I wanted to ask you was before, again, before we go further, if this liberalization is based on this right to liberty, of the constitutional charter, of the, yeah, the fundamental charter. That seems that, it sounds like liberty for the Canadian court is a liberty that is autonomy, right? Completely autonomous decision. And is there in Canada a conversation about this interpretation as the one that exists in the United States? You know, trying, like, are there originalists trying to say, well, when Canada had this, you know, it was a different thing. And like, that's not what mm. we meant by liberty or... As a constitutional scholar, I think, you know, yeah. that, that might be your bread and butter. It's a great question. I, it doesn't seem like much of that discussion happens in the decision from 2015. And I can't think off the top of my head of many of the decisions where the court has gone down that originalist kind of route around this particular provision of the charter, Section 7, which has been used in other contexts. It's pretty broad, right? To life, liberty, security of the person. That covers a lot of potential Yeah, sounds like topics. due process, right? It's, it's, there's, a lot, there's a lot there that you, where yeah. you could go. Um, so I think it's fair to say that but that being said, there are some some interesting scholarship in Canada around actually originalism occurring in certain Supreme Court of Canada cases without being labeled as such. So there's actually arguably probably more than most Canadian constitutional scholars, including myself, prior to reading that scholarship, knew was occurring. It's just not usually given that that label in the same kind of highlighted, underlined way with a heading that you might see perhaps elsewhere. But I wanted, before I forget, Mariana, to mention, you asked about whether the court expressed concern in 2015 or was trying to show some caution moving forward. In fairness to the court, the court does, for example, it gives Parliament a year. It actually sustains through what's called a suspended declaration of invalidity, sustained the unconstitutional state of the criminal code for a year saying that this is a very complex area, clearly very nuanced, a lot of concerns. We want Parliament to take its time to get this quote-unquote right, was what the court was saying, to make sure that they really think about the various kind of complexities at play. The court also does mention in other cases that other parts of the decision, excuse me, that, you know, safeguards will need to be you know, considered, you know, that you know, that would be totally legitimate for Parliament and the provinces who have a lot of jurisdiction over healthcare to, you know, carefully tailor a system to make sure that vulnerable individuals are not being given this kind of just easily, for lack of a better way of putting it, or without much effort. That's a discussion we can have as to whether that's panned out in a certain way. So the court does, in fairness to the court, there is there are there is mention and kind of mechanisms, I suppose, used by the court, especially that year, turned out to be a year and a half, sustaining of the unconstitutional law to give parliament a chance to respond. But that first paragraph to me still really does tell the story. The court comes out kind of very, with a very strong message. It's also worth noting just very quickly that back in 1994, 1994, the court had considered on a previous occasion the constitutionality of those criminal code prohibitions that blocked physician-assisted death. And in a five to four decision, uh, a nine-member court found that upheld, upheld at that time, but then revisited the issue in 2015. And then in a unanimous decision, nine to zero, uh, struck down these criminal code prohibitions to certain extents. Just maybe some 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 people in the audience might be interested. How are the justices of the Supreme Court? Are they elected? Are they political? Political appointments, basically appointed by the, the prime minister. On the as it turns out in Canada, I don't know how long this history is of this, but there's a lot of consultation within the kind of the legal profession, academia, uh, to try to you know, see who might be a, a good good option. But there's no one thing that's interesting. There's no um, kind of a Senate hearings, for lack of a better way of putting. It. We do have a bicameral legislature as well with the, you know, the House of Commons and, and the Senate, but there's no, uh, for a long time, there was absolutely no kind of presentation or, or appearance by the nominee and then a vote. Once the prime minister has chosen, that person is assuming that they satisfy the legislative criteria, they need to be a lawyer of a certain number of years, et cetera, et cetera, at the bar. Once, assuming that all those criteria are, are, are satisfied, they're on the court. In 2000, and I want to say 2008, 2009, the then conservative government did introduce something somewhat akin to, let's call it the Senate 
hearings, but confirmation hearings, but there was no vote. It was more of like a, a meet and greet. Like, you know, here's our, our nominee. Usually they'd be interviewed in, in a public hearing by a distinguished law professor, asked a number of questions, and then they would carry on to being appointed. But there was nothing that kind of hinged on that in terms of whether they would actually be on the court at the end of the day. And is it life tenure? No, it's till 75. So age 75. Okay. Um, and it's interesting, you know, many do go to 75, but a lot, especially in recent history, a lot of retirements prior to, to 75 as well. Okay. Right. Now, that said, let's take the story from where we left it. So we mm. were left at July 2016 and then the challenges to that law that... That's right. So this challenge basically saying that this requirement of death being reasonably foreseeable should not be a part of Canada's euthanasia, medical assistance in dying scheme. Ultimately in... So what would, what would you need it to be? Do you need to have a disease... That yeah. causes so basically intolerable suffering has to be intolerable, of course, according to you, because like, yeah, from ultimately with from a determination that I determined that this is just too much for me to okay. subjectively to, to carry on with, and so the basic the real the, the attack or the kind of the challenge was why do we have this kind of confining of it? What if I'm someone who's 50 years old? I have a condition, maybe chronic back pain that cannot be remedied. And, it's, and and it's just it's just it's got to that point where it's in, intolerable. I can't continue. I can't function. I'm on my, my lying down all day. Can't get a job, et cetera, et cetera. A terrible situation. But my death, I could live for twenty years yeah. or more. Why am I not allowed to have this? Based on you know, this idea of autonomy, you know, basically the same principles that did a lot of the driving work in the 2015 decision. In 2019, a lower court, a court of first instance in Quebec, hearing one of these um, lawsuits that was kind of attacking the reasonable foreseeability component of the original first version of the euthanasia, basically agreed, struck, and said that it, that component of the law of 2016 was not compliant with the charter and had to be read out of it. Instead of what was a, what was a surprise, well, maybe that, that in and of itself was, was, could be somewhat of a surprise, but what was particularly surprising is that the federal government did not appeal did not appeal the decision to the appellate court in Quebec and then ultimately to the Supreme Court of Canada to see to ask the court, listen, there's some ambiguity perhaps on this point in your decision from 2015. Help us out. Uh, that didn't happen. The federal government basically codified, took up the 2019 decision of the trial judge in Quebec, transformed it into what you would call is the second version of, of assisted death of euthanasia in Canada, which was passed in part because of the pandemic, which happened, which kind of delayed things on a variety of fronts, but was ultimately enacted in March of 2021, so a little over two years ago, to take out that reasonable foreseeability requirement. There were some other changes, but the fundamental hallmark change was taking out the reasonable foreseeability of death, which obviously widened eligibility for, assist for euthanasia enormously, tremendously in Canada, such that now you could have like the, the, the person with the chronic back pain, for example. And we have had examples of, we can get to that, some of the stories that have come out. Yeah, because I think I, I think that what makes it clear also for our audience to understand why a legal scholar decides to write about it, you know, we all have our opinions about what sure. is right. But there is something about, I think, the, the, the nobility of the legal profession, which we are losing, but I, I still think it's a noble profession, was that it was strongly related to justice. And, and, you know, you start reading some of the stories you mentioned in, in, in the article you wrote to speak of injustice, at least to me. So maybe, you know, yeah, if you maybe mention, you know, we, we will understand probably what prompted you to write about this mm -hmm. with you, you know, sharing some of the stories caused by, you know, the, the new definitions that, that the law has. Yeah, so thank you for that. I mean, March, so March of 2021, we have this much more expanded version of assisted death. And uh, I mentioned earlier, as it turned out in 2021, we had 10,000 people fail themselves of that. That was a 32% increase from the year prior. I think in part because obviously it became wider, but also just the numbers from 2016, even within the first version, have, and then moving to the second version, have progressively continued. I, I'll be curious to see what the numbers are for 2022 when we receive them. I'm, I'm, I'm already I'm lamenting that they might be indeed a, quite a further spike. Uh, we'll see what, how that looks. But where things really, I think, could end up being, looking back, an inflection point, a real perhaps turning point, hopefully for the from my perspective, you talk about our opinions, my for the positive in Canada would have been about about this time last year, 2022. We'd had about a year under the second version. And by that time, some stories were uh, being, I, I want to say, put it this way, spontaneously reported by various media sources of Canadians who satisfied the medical criteria for, for 
assisted death. Their deaths weren't on the horizon, but they had a certain degree of suffering, irremediability, et cetera, et cetera. But the kind of thread between all of them was that their socioeconomic circumstances, for lack of a better way of putting it, were a major driving factor for seeking assisted death. So the one that one that hit the hit the news was indeed a fellow with 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 uh, with back pain, severe chronic back pain, living in Ontario. He had been living in uh, affordable housing for a while, or housing he could afford, and um, his rent went up. And he basically said, between being he couldn't find anywhere else to live because of his medical circumstances affecting his ability to work and therefore to have income to pay for housing. And he said, listen, if the fork in the road is between being homeless or dying, and I am eligible, it seems, for assisted death, I'm going to pursue assisted death. I don't want to die, but between those two choices, I'm going to pursue assisted death. I happen to satisfy those requirements, those medical circumstances, so I'm going to go for it. His story hit the news, and um, because of a crowdfunding campaign that really a surge of support for him. This is one of his more heartening stories. He was able to, you know, basically be in a financial situation uh, that averted him needing to, or, or his decision to, to pursue assisted death. So that's that's one example that hit the news. Another was two women who suffer from something called MCS. I think it's multiple chemical sensitivity. I may have the name okay. wrong. MCS. Basically, in a nutshell, certain scents, uh, certain you know, household cleaners, for example would cause you know, severe problems for them, definitely diagnosed as such, like a real... So the, the environment in which they were living really made a difference. And they couldn't find uh, affordable housing or, or adequate housing that, mm-hmm. that fit that condition. And both of them sought assisted death, one of which did, was, was euthanized. Uh, the other, last time I checked, has not, and I hope has, has not, and I hope that she's she's okay. So those are other examples of you know, some back pain, kind of chemical sensitivity, then what really, it's a bit of a pivot, but I think it's an important pivot, in that 2021 second version of assisted death, something that almost made it in, but didn't at the, at the last minute, was including in the medical kind of um, criteria, the eligibility criteria, was to expand it to people who were suffering solely from mental illness. That did not make it into the March 2021 second version at the end of the day. But the law did include a sunset clause that would make it automatically available, further expand to people with mental illness as of March of, 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 of 2020, uh, of this past year, of, of two years, sorry, it would have been two years. From March of 2021, it was a two-year sunset clause that would have kicked in this past March, March of 2023, to further expand to include people suffering solely from mental illness. As it turns out, because of a, in part, I think because of these these reports that I was just talking about that came out last year, there was a surge of, I think, attention and awareness. I think a lot of Canadians, to be perfectly honest, weren't aware of how fast, maybe in part because this happened during the pandemic, people just not plugged in, et cetera, et cetera, how fast this was going. And as I called it in one of my op-eds, seemed like kind of like a a runaway train, just was just going full speed. And as it turns out, the government has delayed further the expansion to people suffering solely from mental illness, to March of next year, 2024. But they have said it's just a delay. It's not a abandonment of that. It's not, they're not canceling that plan. So we are on track for, let's call it the third version, to kick in next March, which would further expand it to individuals suffering solely from, from mental illness. Yeah, although the hope is that articles like the one you wrote and more articles and more papers and more essay and more news might you know, prevent that from happening. You were also talking about opening this to minors. Yeah, before I get to to, to minors, one thing I'll say is, I think when I said that maybe the reporting that happened, started happening last year in 2022 and has continued pretty unabated. A recent one that came out just a few, maybe about a month ago was that assisted death started to be, or there are cases of euthanasia now within prisons in Canada, which uh, there's a whole- It's not that surprising, right? I mean, Perhaps, yeah, can prefer, terms, yeah. Right. Yeah. So here's their choice. You can either continue yeah. you know, life imprisonment or maybe there's, in terms of vulnerability, there's a bunch of problems there to put it, put it mildly. But um, one thing that did come out amidst all of this, there are a bunch of parliamentary committees that have been studying where do we go next? Basically, uh, where, where, what's the next step after the third version, you know, five, 10 years down the road last fall. So fall of 2022, with the expansion to mental illness being on the horizon for this this March, potentially delayed, but you know before the third version had even come into to play, a representative of the College of Physicians of Quebec at a parliamentary hearing suggested that 
euthanasia should be expanded to infants, uh, newborns suffering from severe illness or disability, uh, which would, uh, and that caused a real stir, to put it mildly. Fast forward a few months later, February of this year, February 2023 or thereabouts, one of the parliamentary committees issues a, re a report, recommendations of where should we should go from here. And one of those recommendations is to basically lower the age. Right now, up until now, you have to be at least 18 to be eligible for euthanasia. There is a age requirement. And I should also say, I should have mentioned before, there is a consent requirement. You have to consent. Although suggesting it for newborns obviously takes consent out of the out of the window. But anyway, this report said we should expand this amongst the other potential expansions that are coming to so-called mature minors. Now, so you think of the 16-year-old, the 15-year-old, the 17-year-old who would like for whatever, you know, increasingly it seems like for whatever reason, we're not there yet, but one of the issues of this is just this runaway train seems to be going to a place where, as I've said before, you would be able to basically ask for euthanasia just because you wake up one morning and just yeah. you can't carry on. I was told what really put things starkly for me in perspective is I heard, you know, a parent say to me, you know, that's a parent's like worst nightmare. Yeah. You know, you, 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 because one of the things that the report suggested is maybe they would even recommend that parental consent isn't needed for the 16 year old. So you have your 16 year old who is suffering from whatever it might be and you know, a difficult situation and you come home one day and they're gone. And it, it sounds like people say, oh, you're fear mongering. That's another whole topic we could have, you know, the slippery slope argument. People have been from day one, from that 2015 decision, people saying this is where we're going to end up, is in a place where we now basically are in Canada. They were said you're irrational, you're fear mongering, et cetera, et cetera. And yet the proof has been sadly. In, in yeah, the it's more than 10,000 people. This, And I mean, I, I did know the numbers because, the, and out here I want to bring up why I connected this topic with the one that we addressed with Villa Verde and with the declining population. You know, I was, we, we recently had this conference in Italy on the, the, the decrease in fertility and the aging population. And when you cannot pay pensions, you cannot pay public officials, you cannot pay for housing, you end up recommending, as I read the news about the, the veterans in Canada, yes. right? That they were suggested, well, why don't you, why don't you consider killing yourself, right? Yeah. So what I did say in that, in that occasion was, you know, there are solutions, but they're not pleasant one. And, and there are costs to our healthcare. There are costs to taking care of our parents. There are costs that even, you know, the old, what I would, what I would also like, would like to strike, you know, if people think, oh, but this is never going to be my case. But when mm. you know that you are a burden, you're 65 or you're 70, and you know you're a burden to your own kids who are already struggling, and this option is given to you and is given to them, there is almost a sense of like, well, I should, right? It's time for me to go which just educates us to the opposite of what humanity is, which is, right, brotherhood in the crosses of every day. Because the, the cross is not only the illness. And here I feel mm -hmm. like I'm preaching, but that's, that's how we live, right? Like we have crosses every day. Otherwise, we would not have all the mental issues we have on campuses, right? We have students that are healthy, wealthy, prepared to be, you know, the the champions of tomorrow, and they are depressed and sad. And, and, and our role of everyone, right, is to help them out of it. So in, in every case and in every stage of our life, it feels like the right decision is not to tell someone, well, you know, just make up your mind about it. It's like, do whatever you want. It's like, no, I'm here for you. But the, the point you made about burden, I, I literally was having a discussion with a, a friend of mine and coming from a particular culture where he said that Basically, what you just said, Mariana, that you know that because if this is made more available, he can easily envision whether it's his parents or parents of people within his culture saying, "Oh boy, I have become a burden to my children, and I therefore have some sort of a duty at some level to to not be a burden anymore." And indeed, the statistics from twenty twenty one, you know, this is all very public. They include a list of um, I don't know. I, I presume this is happening in the application for assisted death for euthanasia, asking what are the motivating factors for why you're doing this. And in 2021, of those 10,000 deaths, 35 or so percent listed as at least one of the factors driving them to do this was basically because they perceived they were a burden on family members. Yeah. So 35, well, a third of those 10,000, they may have listed other options. One of the other options was isolation. 17% listed that, loneliness. So this is happening even in the early days. Before, I mean, all know how the law can normalize and, and be a teacher of what's, you know. Another thing, as you mentioned before, you, you made a very good point. I think the fact that this is housed within the medical profession, as I've heard one person put it, one scholar, the phrase will always stick with me. When you put the white coat on something, on a procedure, or there, it can help, again, to normalize or to, um, yeah, to legitimize 
ethical, moral level, what's going on. Um, and you made the other point of, you know, between saying, I'm going to take these pills myself and you know, commit assisted suicide, or, or as opposed to let the person with the white coat do it to me, because they do generally good things. That I think has a, has a big impact, picking up what you said later, earlier on, excuse me. And this is a topic also that I would like to address in a, in a future, not only in a podcast, but I think this should be a topic that we, we all read about, which is moral injury. The sort of like, quote unquote, burnout of doctors. And the moral injury is basically what they, you know, the, the way to describe it is like whatever doctors are pressured to do t- today that is against their own idea and belief of what it means to be a healer, right? And to be a doctor. And they, they are suffering symptoms that are very close to post-traumatic stress disorder because they're being required to do things that are not what they wanted to do when they went to med school. I mean, this is striking. I I also want to make clear, right, that the reason to talk about this issue is, you know, the Italian and the Canadian speaking about this topic on the American podcast is because these issues are international. What happens in, right? So it doesn't stay in one place. It travels and it becomes normalized in one country. It becomes normalized in another one. That well, but why? And I've heard stories of American friends who are also Canadian citizens that are considering, you know, just taking a trip to Canada in order to yeah. to do that. I don't know what the rules are for foreigners. If this is something that is only for citizens, as good, if it were good question. Foreigners. I haven't looked into the, into that to be to be honest. Um, I haven't seen any reporting around it, which would have. You imagine, especially would have come up if it was something that should that is not allowed to be happening. So, but I, I don't know. That's a good question. I should look into it. What one thing that I will do is, you know, together with linking to your article, I will link also to those public records that you mentioned because I think sure. those numbers important. are are important for everyone to see. On another front, when the Italian Constitutional Court made its decision, I mean, it remained poetry what it stated, but it it said, you know, it's mandatory that before recurring to this to assisted suicide in in, in the Italian case, there should be recourse to palliative care true recourse to palliative care. Is that the case in Canada? What's the status of palliative care? Is that even provided? Yeah, so this has been a big discussion about, you know, this, it was already happening before 2015, but the state of palliative care in Canada. And certainly I think it's hard to find kind of consensus on how how good or how bad, or maybe maybe it's more about how bad it is within the how bad spectrum in terms of how bad palliative care is in Canada. I think there is consensus that it's not where it needs to be. At least, at least that it could be and should be a lot better. Certainly, once assisted death came onto the radar, the impetus to to work on this issue and our advocacy around it, around palliative care, intensified. Because of course, if there's that gap or a sufficient gap or not enough palliative care, that can make the option of assisted death even more palatable to someone, or make it seem like it, there really is no other other option. I think one one thing I'll say is that oh, in terms of eligibility, there's no requirement that you have to try palliative care first or have to go through that. Basically, if you satisfy the medical criteria, you've, you, you have a certain age, you consent, at least at this point. Of the current is there law. a wait? Like, do they reconfirm the decision like a, a month later? Or like, do you know if there's a... So the, the safeguards have kind of changed over time and, you know, in terms of how many people need to sign off, you know, one person, two persons. And, you know, but the short story is I mean, there is... There are, some cooling off or waiting periods. Those have, I think the general trajectory has been from the first version to the second version. I think it's fair to say that the safeguards have become fewer on that front in terms of the, so the barriers have, I think it's fair as a general, without getting too much into the, to the weeds, have become, it's become easier. The hurdles have become less high or lowered, uh, but you still have to, of course, make a formal application. A certain number of people who are authorized to provide assisted death, have to sign off on it. One author that's worth um, looking at, he's he's a Canadian, but based in the U.S., Alexander Raikin, R-A-I-K-I-N. He wrote a piece in the New Atlantic last December, which was very eye-opening in terms of how the whole industry, I hope I don't sound overly pejorative, of assisted death kind of operates. It's rather kind of insular and they're kind of, they're doing, anyway, it's worth a read. Alexander Raikin's piece in the New Atlantic from last December. He's also, I think, written written more. But the short story is you don't need to say, I've gone through palliative care. I, I, I don't want to do that anymore. It'd be interesting to see how many people have actually done that. Although for people whose death is not on the horizon, like the chronic back pain at age 50, I suppose palliative care wouldn't even really be a, an option. It's more, for, of course, for end of life. But one story that's worth mentioning very quickly is here in my home province in British Columbia, there was a, a hospice hospice uh, for end-of-life care, for palliative care. 
10 beds, very small. I've been operating, I think, since the early 1990s. It's a bit of a complicated case, but the short story is that hospice was told by the relevant health authority here in British Columbia that you have to open up to the possibility of euthanasia within your walls, within your hospice, or you'll lose basically your license and we're going to take over the building and it'll be run no longer as a private hospice, for lack of a better way of putting it, but now as a fully public. And to really show how bad things got, the hospice said, listen, okay, I know we do get at this point some funding from you. We've had for many years. We'll find a way to fund it completely ourselves. No public funds, but we'll continue to operate as a euthanasia-free zone. The government said, nope, that's we're not going to countenance that. Provide euthanasia, or at least make it available as an option, or we're coming in to take over. And they eventually did take over. Yeah, hospice. whoever is watching the YouTube can see my suffering face, but I, I, I would encourage, you know, the listeners to just close your eyes and imagine that you're sick and you're brought in a hospice and you know that in the next room, people are brought to die. Is that how does that make you feel? Right? Yeah, absolutely. Do you feel like you're being cured? That this is a place that you would call a hospice, really? Or are we going back to the darkest time in history that we thought were behind us? But as every historian knows, there's the dark times are never behind us because good and evil, I mean, it's a constant fight. So there's always a reason to to be, you know, an alert, be on guard. And And with that on guard, I think I get... You know, I, I promise it wasn't programmed as I didn't write it down, but like I think I got to the end of that article you wrote, which mentioned, you know, why you do this. Like it, it had something to do with Canada and like hmm. what you would like your country to be. Yeah. So I, I was invited to give a lecture. It's actually the lecture that uh, formed the basis of that Colette article. Um, it was a lecture at a local college here uh, on the same campus that I'm, it's a Protestant evangelical college called Regent College, and they organized a, a talk uh, inviting me to give a lecture on euthanasia. Is it a runaway train or can we kind of stop this runaway train? And about a week before, maybe, yeah, a week or two before the lecture, I was I hadn't actually written it yet. I was having difficult, it's a tough subject. You know, it's it's one of those things where I would say, I'm, I'm pleased to give this lecture, but at some level, I'm like, gosh, it's such a difficult topic. And I'm standing at, you know, a very quintessential Canadian event, which is a hockey game, and we're singing the national anthem. And I'm, I'm a, Marianne will know this, I'm a bit of a musical guy, I like to sing. And so I was, I, I sing the national anthem when the national anthem is being sung. And the, I think it's the most frequent line in our anthem, I think it happens three times, if memory serves, is... This line of, you know, oh, Canada, we stand on guard for thee. And I think historically, I imagine that idea of standing on guard for the country would have been more kind of you know, national defense oriented to do with military, wartime, et cetera, et cetera. I'd always thought of it that way. And maybe because I had the, I knew I needed to write this lecture, but somehow I, in the moment I thought, well, when it comes to euthanasia uh, and how things are going, we are woefully failing to stand on guard for each other as yeah. fellow Canadians. It just, it just has been an absolute abject, if I can be honest, failure. And there's a lot of work that needs to be done. We are just letting this kind of individualistic, atomized kind of culture, which we prevails, has led us to a place where, well, it's, it's unfortunate for this person, but, you know, it's not my not going to happen to me. I'm okay, et cetera, et cetera. I'm being overly crass, but that you really, in, in this 15 seconds of that national anthem, hit me very hard that we're not standing on guard for each other. And so what I reason I do this work or I gave that lecture, wrote that article, I'm doing this podcast, it comes from that place of wanting to try to, in a small way, be a part of starting to stand on guard for the country and more specifically for fellow Canadians who are saying, listen, we have been rendered, our lives have been rendered vulnerable, so vulnerable yeah. that it's getting to a place where this is so accessible and there are so few supports for certain things, whether it's mental health, socioeconomic concerns, that I'm, my life is literally in danger. Yeah. And in today's world, I don't feel like I'm of any value. Right, because yeah. if this is this is the vocabulary around me, I feel like I, I am a burden. Like I'm, I'm invited to think of myself as a burden. Last question. I mean, I talked about the nobility of the, you know, of the legal profession, but it sounds like it's not that noble if you know lawyers, courts are responsible for this status of things. So, would you think you sh we should do education in order to reverse the trend? Like. Is it something should happen in law schools? Is it something should happen in the family? I mean, I know that, you know, it's a, it's a fight on a lot of fronts, but like, where do you think we have um, forgotten the importance of this kind of formation and we might, you know, do something to change? Yeah, one of the points I made, I don't know if it ended up in the Quillette speech, but it's in the article, but certainly in the remarks at Regent College was that, you know, this in a way, 
it didn't happen just in 2015 and 2016. There had been this erosion prior to that, a setting of the stage to make this so much more palatable and, and for the slope to become very slippery for the train to start to run away and to derail. I think it probably boils down to in a large part, you know, in large part too, just how we understand the human person and what is the meaning of, of dignity? What is that word gets thrown around a lot of dying with dignity? You know, these distortions of these of these fundamental concepts. And what does it mean to be human? What is suffering? What is care? What is dignity? All of these words have been distorted, co-opted, and kind of refashioned to make this worldview, quote unquote, make sense to many people. So I think that a lot of work, probably from indigenous in the family, even from the elementary schools, you know, just how we teach of what it means to be a human person, to accompany someone, to care for someone, what all of these very fundamental concepts of what it means to live together, that, that needs to be rehabilitated. I think it just didn't happen just in 2015 with just that one decision by the Supreme Court. That in many ways was kind of perhaps a, cul a culmination of, of or a product, an outcome of that softening, of an erosion of those principles over many, many years. So will it take a long time, I think, to fix it? So possibly, although, as I mentioned, that in potential inflection point or turning point. Now, after the reporting from last year in 2022, what has happened is this is no longer, I can be put it this way, a kind of a conservative cause in Canada. You have people from, I would say, definitely across the political spectrum speaking out, um, people from the disability community, people from our indigenous communities, people, yes, from religious communities, but from a variety of communities, and I, many of them I can think of off the top, top of my head would not describe themselves as conservative or, or religious, speaking generally the same, singing the same tune, that same standing on guard for thee, yeah. and we're not doing it right now. So then it boils down to you know, who is holding kind of the levers of power. At this moment in time, the individuals who are probably driving this train, basically the federal government, they seem very intent on keeping the train going in one direction. But at least at the grassroots, from across a number of, of constituencies, if I can put it that way, there's been a bit of a groundswell to say, you know, this can't, we can't do this. We need to roll this back. It's going to be a tough, tough job, but I, I've been heartened to see a bit of an awakening. You know, it's not an accident. I don't think that, you know, 60, I think it was $60,000 was raised for that fellow with back pain in mm -hmm. like a month. You know, these are regular Canadians putting their money where their mouth is saying, no, 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 no. This isn't the kind of, kind of society that we, we, we should have. So there are signs of hope, glimmers of hope, and hopefully um, it becomes a lot of, a lot more than just a glimmer very soon. Yeah, I think it's a reminder also for the parents that are listening. I mean, for me to, to, you know, to be reminded of the importance of our work where we mostly focus on like what it means to be human. It's even the title of like our summer seminar for high schoolers. But it's a reminder for all the parents listening that even the vocabulary they use in, you know, in their conversation and like not describing like being not physically the fittest as the the greatest problem that can happen in life, like we'd be emotionally unfit. You're like it being emotionally unprepared to life is probably something that is more challenging and more problematic and like valuing things different from grades and professional success, but like valuing, right? Like other things in our, in the people around us and making them understand that that's important. So no, and I, and, I, and also, you know, it, it, to say like not to blame just the court, if the court made a decision that the whole country didn't like, people would take the streets, right? Right. That The fact that that doesn't happen says how the court expresses um, the view of a majority. Yeah. I want to do something I've never done since I have one of our summer interns in, in the room who's also an undergraduate fellow here. I'm going to ask him, you know, without, we don't need to switch cameras and I'm going to ask if there is something that we left out that he sure. want to ask you and, and then can just have that. Sure. The question, if I understand it correctly, is more like, you know, we did discuss like how our economic system influences this kind of decision, how specifically the economic system affects. So probably, you know, here it would be interesting to hear about whether healthcare is public or private. Yeah, yeah, it's a good question. I mean, a lot of these stories that have been coming out, one of the common threads has been a lot of, a lot of that to do with housing like housing concerns, there's a finding affordable housing or adequate housing. That that's been a common one. Um, another one has been kind of mental health supports or psychological supports. You know, encountering you know massive wait times uh, to get you know very kind of these kind of social kind of healthcare services, especially in, in that realm, in, in psychological uh, or mental health uh, supports. Also, we do have a public healthcare system, and that has, especially over the pandemic, cracks 
uh, were kind of revealed in terms of uh, the stresses or the challenges that our Canadian healthcare system has. And it, it has many, many benefits from my perspective and, and merits, but uh, there's been kind of an interesting realization because of the stresses that the pandemic put on it, uh, that real, we kind of came to see some problems, major problems in terms of you know, a lot to do with wait times, accessibility of having a family doctor, et cetera, et cetera. So a lot of it does seem to revolve around what's often called kind of social supports around health care, around housing, around you know, shelter, very kind of basic you know, affordability, being able to afford food, just very basic things. And, and for a lot of people, then they also happen to have the eligibility criteria for medical assistance and dying for euthanasia. While that is what gets them in the door, so to speak, from a legal perspective, what's clearly it comes out in the stories loud and clear is driving them is inaccessibility to the help they'd like to, they want to live, they want to live, they want to carry on, they want to work through whatever struggles they're going through and, and forge ahead. The human spirit and that condition just kind of comes through in these stories, but they just feel they've hit a, a dead end um, for, for socioeconomic reasons, various socioeconomic reasons, and just get to a point where they feel like they're at a loss and they just can't, don't know what else to do. And they see this option that's being made very, in some of the stories you hear people say, it was much, it was easier for me to apply for and be approved for assisted death than it was for me to get a wheelchair. Yeah. And I, these are in some of the things like that. That's, I think, puts, puts it really into perspective. Yeah, it does. It does. And I mean, I, we could open a conversation about the welfare state and our, one mm, of our fellows, sure. Catherine Pakalok, she defends free market, you know, and at every possible occasion and, and also private healthcare. But it, it makes us think like the welfare state can only exist and thrive when each one of us at least three children and not when you have a decline in fertility and an aging population where, you know, the state can literally not afford getting wheelchairs for everyone who is going to live over 75. So maybe there is more to be said about the economic side of things and we might have this as a clue for, for another chat. Brian, unless I've left any, you know, something out from things you wanted to say, did I did we not cover some of the topics? No, I think it was, it was a very, it was a great conversation. Very, uh, covered a lot of points and I really appreciate you guiding me through it. I appreciate what you told us and your expertise and your time and your article, which again, we will provide the link. Please continue to write and tell us what's happening just, you know, a few miles north. I mean, more from Texas, but less from those who are listening from New York State. Um, sure. Thank you again, Brian. And we'll look forward to having you here in Austin uh, or on our podcast again. Thank you, Mariana. Thank you. Thank you very much for listening. And I hope you enjoyed this episode of our show, What We Can't Not Talk About. If you like this episode, remember to share it among your friends, subscribe to our channel, and if you can, please donate to the Austin Institute. With your support, we can continue to do this. We can continue our programming. And of course, we will continue to support the research of our fellows. Thank you.